Welcome to the Daisy Takes Podcast. I'm Daisy and this is where we talk all things love, life, mindset and relationships. Today I'm joined overseas by Lauren Zamora, a marriage and family therapist and dating coach for women. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, very excited to have you. You are my first official overseas guest as well. And I always do a this or that. So I thought I would kind of make it Brits versus American today. Okay. Um, <laughs> so in in the idea of dating, try and relate it to that. Would you prefer afternoon tea or a coffee and a walk? Mm, coffee and a walk. <laughs> <laughs> Roast dinner date or a beach walk date? Beach walk. Cozy Christmas hot chocolates with like Christmas markets or sun, or sunset yoga. Ooh, I think Christmas market. Okay, that's quite Brit of you. <laughs> Martinis or share a bottle of wine? Bottle of wine. Love it. And a date to Times Square or a date on the London Eye? London Eye. I'm going to go on the London Eye very soon for my honeymoon when I'm there for like 24 hours before we go to Italy. <laughs> oh, that's so exciting. Is that your first time in England? Second. I went with my dad a couple years ago, had an amazing time, but need to go back for longer for sure oh amazing that'll be really romantic on the London Eye you've got to do it it's just a bucket list thing isn't it kisses or hugs uh, hugs and Netflix and chill or TV off and chat and chill hmm chat and chill I'm a big chatter <laughs> I had a feeling you were gonna say that actually yeah. Yeah. and I know that's quite important to you as well yeah. within a relationship so some of my British audience may not have found you yet. So can you introduce yourself from your point of view, maybe like how long you've been a therapist as well? Yeah. So my name is Lauren. I'm a marriage and family therapist turned dating coach. So I still do therapy, but now moving towards doing full-time dating coaching. Um, I've been doing therapy for five years now, which is crazy. My first client I saw in 2019 um, and yeah, now I'm here specializing in helping women find love. And this kind of, did you, did you get into therapy originally because of maybe issues and things that you were experiencing in your own life? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely was kind of the cliche, like therapist of the family, therapist of my friends growing up. Um, and I also just kind of wanted to understand the why my family was the way they were, why things happened the way they did. I really was always interested in trying to understand and empathize. Um, and I was an angry, upset teenager. Part of my teen story was like my first love and it was very intense and upsetting. And I think I really felt misunderstood as a teen and I wanted to help teens originally and then as obviously I got older, I started to really relate to women and their dating story. And I realized how much that was part of the passion. And so now I'm here doing the dating coaching. Wow, that is a really interesting story. I am, um, I think I followed you originally because I'm currently training to be a counselor and psychotherapist here. Um, and that too was predominantly to kind of understanding behaviors around me and my own patterns. And you're right, I've also had those like, all like immersive, all-consuming loves when I was younger. Mm -hmm. um, but now I know I deal with stuff much, much better. And I'm really proud of that journey myself as well. So we'll get into that a little bit, I think. Um, but maybe what behaviors were you experiencing when dating? I know you've got quite a few stories. What was quite a prominent moment that you always kind of look back and reflect on? I mean, there's so many stories. I've probably had some of the craziest dating experiences. Like I was the friend that everyone was like, that would only happen to Lauren. Like just the craziest. Oh, like, <laughs> like really my dating life could be a movie. Um, so there's so many. But I think, you know, if I really was looking back at like the craziest dating experiences, I think honestly, my high school relationship was like, really Romeo and Juliet-esque and very intense, very dramatic. Um, and now looking back, emotionally abusive, which I didn't realize that at the time. And I think that had a really big role in my dating patterns as an adult, whether I realized it or not. Now, of course, childhood impacted that. 
But I also was just a teenager, like figuring out love for the first time. And the fact that that was kind of my blueprint to romantic love, I think created a really unhelpful pattern into my adult life of seven years, really, of toxic dating. So... Yeah, you hit a good point there, actually, because no one gets taught about this stuff. Like, we don't get taught behaviors in school. Um, I mean, even, I don't know what it's like in the US, but even, like, sex education here is pretty bad when you look back and think we, you learn nothing about anything. But there's, yeah. there really is no, like, relationship advice at any point. You just get thrown in and you you have all these emotions. And especially if you do find, like, the love of your life that we probably can all think of between, like, maybe some people it's, like, 14. For me, it was, like, 16 to mm. 18, 19, 20. That is so young when you see, like, people that age now to be dealing with so many other emotions as well as, like, school, college, university, all of that. Yeah, absolutely. And developmentally, when you are that age, you are not able to see far in the future. So like your world is everything. The now is everything. That's why we all kind of believe we're going to get married and we're going to be the high school sweethearts and we're going to run off into the sunset. Like we believe that wholeheartedly. And then you have adults kind of telling you that it's not going to happen, which makes you want to prove them wrong and hold on <laughs> even longer, I think. And it just it's so frustrating that we don't have a class on relationships. And that's not part of our upbringing, because then we just do what we know, what's familiar, what we grew up with. In some way or another, we recreate patterns. Exactly. And movies obviously don't help here because I've always like idolized a type of mine that does always happen to look at like the stereotypical head turner guy that is always like the guy that everyone wants in a movie. And it is only recently that I've been like, Daisy, you need to turn away from this. So I know that this was kind of part of your cycle going for the same type. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? What kind of types were you going for? Yeah, well, so I always thought I didn't have like a type as far as looks went. Like if you lined up all my exes, they really didn't look very similar. So I thought like, I don't have a type like I'm so I don't know, like wise, but really I did. And that type was avoidant men. It was the guy who maybe was a player or noncommittal. And I think I really subconsciously wanted to live out that you know, that romantic part in the movie where you get the player or the the non, non-committal non guy to settle down with you, to choose you, and that that would make me feel so special and so important. So when I would go on dates and a guy would be like just super into me, very like kind, very consistent, I would be like, mm, don't feel anything, don't feel a spark, don't feel the sexual chemistry, there's no intensity here. I'm going to be mean to him because he's too nice. I'm just going to like cut this off now so I don't hurt anyone. And it really caused me <laughs> seven years of constant disappointment in dating. Oh my goodness. So many people are experiencing this same thing. And you talk a lot on your social media about finding that calm and that consistent person and that person that like doesn't activate your nervous system in the wrong way. Um, you did an excellent post recently, which I've since directed people to uh, mm. when they've come to me. And I've been like, read this post because it, it just explains it perfectly. And that was your Mr. Mediocre post. Yeah. Can you tell us about Mr. Mediocre? Yeah, I love Mr. Mediocre. And I read a book, something about like why you should settle for like Mr. Good Enough or something, I think a while back too. So I can kind of that inspired it. But Really, Mr. Mediocre is just the guy who is not confusing you, who's not leaving you guessing, who's not charming you. You know, I think love bombing feels so good when you go on dates with guys who don't put an effort and like are like doing bare minimum in the other way. They're lazy. You can tell they're just there for sex and they don't put much effort in it all. So then all of a sudden you meet the love bomber and he's super over the top and he tells you everything you've been wanting to hear and he charms the shit out of you, sorry for the language, and you're like, ooh, like, this feels so good. Finally, someone who, like, sees me for me, and you feel so amazing about it, but really what's happening is if you're being honest with yourself, this person doesn't know you. They know nothing about you, and they're telling you you're the best person they've ever met, how amazing you are, how wonderful you are, 
and they create anxiety inside of you because reality is you know on some level that this feels off, but it also feels so good. So you hold on to it. You get excited. Here's your movie starting right now. But Mr. Mediocre doesn't do any of that. And so it can feel boring. It can feel too calm. And really, Mr. Mediocre is going to meet you right where you're at. He's just going to get to know you. He's not going to be saying all these amazing, wonderful things. He's not going to be promising you the world. He's going to be a regular person who's just getting to know you, caring, consistent, reliable. When he says he wants a date with you, he plans a date with you. And it's going to be a slow burn with Mr. Mediocre. And I think the biggest thing is reliable, kind, considerate, and it's not going to feel exciting and sparks aren't going to be flying right away with Mr. Mediocre. But that's really the person that you want to end up with. And that slow burn, that burn does develop, that passion does get there, but it's not going to be so intense and it's not going to be so quick. Yeah, and this is a pattern that a lot of people are talking about on my podcast, like maybe building that friendship first, mm-hmm. or that kind of true connection that doesn't involve like that that lust or like the the ghoster that you described. I had like my final ghoster where like earlier this year where I was like, okay, this pattern needs to stop. Mm-hmm. And you know, he was like the Ken, like muscles, mm-hmm. tanned, gorgeous. And there was just all this lust there, but he was just saying so many words that didn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. And it was after him that I would say, right, this this had to be it, Daisy. Like that had to be the last of my pattern. And uh, since it sounds horrible because mediocre is not a nice word, but we all know what we are talking about here now you've explained it. And I've been dating a Mr. Mediocre currently and it is bizarre. It's such a difference, ex- different experience. Um, obviously it's still early days, so I don't know what will happen. So I don't want to like big him up too much, but mm. he is consistent, actions meet words. You can talk to him about doing plans together like two months away and he's not going to freak out. He's just like, oh yeah, at Christmas. And I'm like, whoa, (laughs) this is really refreshing. But it's just so calm. He can leave my house. We don't have to text all day, but I know that like whenever he's ready, I'm I'm always going to hear from him. So I don't have that anxiety all day of checking my phone. It's like super chilled. So then it's hard, isn't it, to rewire your brain? Because I've had to be like, am I not checking my phone because I don't care? But it's like, no, it's because I know is going to message me when we're free. So I don't need to check. Yeah, exactly. And that I just did a post on this like early this morning, actually, too, about kind of how you might figure out someone's the one and not saying that you would figure that out yet because you're early on in dating. But once you've been dating a while, what right what you're saying, I mean, it's I don't think about this person all day long every day because I don't have anything to analyze or worry about. My my butterflies and anxiety aren't going off, like worrying that, you know, something's going to go wrong. Instead, I'm just calm and I'm able to focus on work because I know he's going to text me. I know I'm going to hear from him. I know we're going to see each other again and how how good that feels. And I've been following your story and I'm so excited for you <laughs> because he really does have so many green flags. And I think it's an adjustment for our nervous system, for our body to go like, what is happening? I'm not anxious. I'm not worried. Does this mean I don't like this person? No, it means that your body is finally starting to feel safe with someone. You can finally rest. And that once you kind of get comfortable resting and you can ride this wave out, there's a great book. It's called Deeper Dating and Inspired. My deeper dating coaching business. And he talks about the wave and that we all have to go through a wave when we start dating a healthy person, a secure person for the first time, a Mr. Mediocre. We have to ride this wave out where our nervous system wants to go, something's off here, something's wrong because it's uncomfortable to feel peace for the first time and riding that wave out so you can get to the other side of like embracing it and being turned on by the peace. Like it becomes such a turn on to know like he's going to text you. He's making plans for Christmas. Like there's nothing to worry about. Like the safety feels so good once you really allow yourself to embrace it. Yeah. And it's just wild how, how many people feel this way. I have a lot of friends that meet people that make them feel like this and they're like, oh, but it's, it is boring. And it is just switching that mindset. Um, you mentioned earlier that you go for, you went for previously avoidant men, 
Mm-hmm. I um, have read the amazing book that is attached. And obviously yeah. it's the anxious type that tend to go for avoidance. Were you, did you have an anxious attachment style? I did. I would say I had an anxious avoidance, so a little bit in the disorganized category, or now a lot of people call it fearful avoidant, but I definitely leaned way more on the anxious side. And my avoidance really showed up with secure guys or with the good guys, the Mr. Mediocres. That's where <laughs> a lot of us can get avoidant, but I absolutely was anxious. Um, and that was kind of my final straw was I knew my pattern. I knew that I liked the charming guy. I knew that I liked the life of the party guy. And in reality, my story was I liked a narcissistic guy. And I don't use that term lightly. I not every avoidant is narcissistic, but part of my story and my family pattern is the narcissism. And the last guy that I dated before Blake was a love bomber. And I saw it from miles away, but I reached out to my friends who I knew would tell me I was overreacting, that I'm just not like allowing myself to enjoy this. And I need to just like enjoy this basically love bombing. And, but they were telling me like a guy treating you well. And I reached out to the friends that I knew would encourage me to date him, even though everything inside of me was like, do not do it. And I ended up a month later blindsided, ghosted by someone who was promising me the world and telling me I was the best person ever. And I was crying on the bathroom floor over a guy I barely knew. And I knew, I knew it from the beginning. And I think like the story I kept saying was like, I'm so stupid. Why did I do this again? And it was so just disheartening to go. I saw it. I think that was like my last test was like, I saw this and I got tempted and I went with it anyway, even though I know it was going to hurt me. And I was done. I was like, this is my rock bottom. I cannot feel (laughs) this way ever again. And I mean, it was just like red flags all over the place, but I ignored every single one of them because it felt so good after a string of just like non-committal guys coming my way. But it was too good to be true. And we really need to be honest with ourselves about that. I just find it so weird that we all have these stories and the same type of person has the same type of patterns. Do you do you have any insight into why there are people that will come along, love bomb, and then just ghost out of thin air? Yeah, I think that whether they're a full-blown narcissist or they're just avoidant, I think avoidance, they want connection. They do. And I think avoidance, they mean what they say on a lot of levels. They do feel a certain type of way about you. But with avoidance, their problem is they kind of do the same thing and they self-sabotage relationships just like anxious do. But once they feel seen, once they feel like you're expecting something from them, once they feel like there's real vulnerability there, that really overwhelms their nervous system and they want to run in the other direction because typically they've grown up in an environment where either let's say they had a mom who relied on them way too much emotionally or they had parents that they could never rely on themselves. And so once they feel like this person's expecting anything from me, I have to show up, they run in the other direction. So I think with avoidance, they typically do have some feelings, but once it gets real, they can't handle it. It it triggers their kind of imposter syndrome. I can't handle this and they're out. Versus I think love bombers and the narcissist, like the guy that I dated, the last one, I believe it's an ego trip for them. They feel they love watching someone fall in love with them. And I'll just be honest, my brother is a full blown narcissist. And he's part of my pattern and the reason that I ended up in that. And I've heard my brother say, it's like, I love buying girls flowers. I love doing this because it's so cool to watch how happy it makes them. I tell them what they want to hear because they love it. It's like, they love watching your face light up. They love watching you fall in love with them. And once they got that, once they got what they want, and now you're expecting more from them, they're out. They're like, okay, this is getting real. You're not, you're not soothing my ego anymore. I'm going to go fall in love with someone else. And so a lot of times, We can also see that with sex addiction and that feeling of they're addicted to the beginning. Mm -hmm. They're addicted to the falling in love. Yes, that's why normally if you do look back and if you have met someone like um, who Laurel is describing, it's always like a three-month thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because that that. was my 
almost I called them the almost relationships three months was my pattern so I was always anxious when the three months was coming around like this is when it ends like I what do I need to do to hold on to it is it gonna happen and it always ended yeah that's same with me I feel like I never get past that three month mark it's crazy Um, Obviously, there's a lot of people, maybe like lockdown started it, talking online about this kind of thing. A lot of people that actually aren't qualified, which is why I personally, I'm really careful with what advice I do give. I try and stay away from so much the advice, but helping people understand patterns more so because at the moment, I'm not qualified, but one day I will be. Um, You are a qualified therapist. So what actually... When was it that you thought, I want to go online now and start talking openly about this? Yeah, well, I think once I figured out kind of what I needed to do to change my patterns, because I had self-awareness for so long as a therapist, which made me feel even more like an imposter. Like, I know what's going on, but I can't integrate. I cannot make a change. Like, how am I just like in autopilot over and over again? And so once I kind of figured out, how you can really heal those attachment wounds, how you can really create change. Because even in the in therapy school, whatever that is for you in London versus America, um, it's not really getting to the dating spot, the, the beginning phases of dating. We talk about relationships a lot in the therapy world, but we don't talk about the, the dating process and finding that. And so there wasn't a lot of information out there. So once I kind of figured out how you actually heal, how you show up in dating to, to change these patterns, I was so passionate about helping other women because when I was dating, even though I was dating three years ago, Um, so three years ago I was still single, but I think it was like right then that this information started to be more readily available on social media before then, not so much. And so I felt so alone in it. I felt like I had no tools. I felt like I had no help. And I also felt so alone, like the bad dating advice all the time just made me feel like I was desperate, pathetic, something's wrong with me. And I wanted to help so many women not feel that way anymore and realize they're not alone. And it just became a huge passion of mine. So I organically like posted in a Facebook group was like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you guys think? And like so many women responded was like, how can I sign up? And then I just like frantically made an Instagram account. And then here we are. And I really didn't start being um, consistent on Instagram until like three months ago. And so now I'm just starting to grow and take this seriously because I've been a full-time therapist this whole time. But even before that, I was filling groups and have tons of one-on-one clients. And that's because so many women need the support. Yeah, they really, really do. Um. You mentioned friends a little bit earlier and like people giving you bad advice and I kind of have a little bit of a rule where I don't really go to my friends anymore if I need advice. I kind of reflect on my own and be like, right, if it, is it making me happy or is it not? And then that's where I go because I think those that really want the relationship for you and maybe people that haven't dated in the last, I'd say, five to eight years when there's been dating apps and when there's been lots of changes and weird modern dating terms and behaviours come around, I don't, I, you can't take advice from people that haven't dated in that time. Um, so how did dating affect you? Obviously, each time you get affected by someone, each time you listen to friends, you take advice, you have a little bit of a setback, you might delete an app, you might stop seeing like seeing and seeking dates. How did it affect you each time? Because that's really tough, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it just recreated this pattern. Like it made my anxious attachment stronger and stronger. Because I had this story, like people, once people get to know me, they leave, right? That felt like the three months, like once they really know me, they leave. I'm unlovable. I'm unworthy. I think that really started to show up and feel so much more real the longer I was single. Almost, you know, I put this timeline on it, like seven years, like I, there's really something wrong with me. And to the point where it becomes an ego thing where you're just like wanting to be chosen. You don't care who the guy is. You're like, I just want someone to tell me they want me to be their girlfriend so I can feel better about myself. And you stop being a chooser and you stop being someone who actually believes they're worth more. And I think it really, really crushes your self-worth and self-esteem. And I think people, like you said, friends who haven't been in that dating world, haven't ever really dealt with the apps, they don't even have any clue what that feels like to be feel constant rejection and feel constant disappointment. 
Um, and the friends that I had who were single, who were going through it, they still gave me kind of toxic dating advice that's been passed down by society. So the, you know, it'll happen when you least expect oh, it. Literally the most frustrating piece of advice anyone can ever give you. Please don't do that to your friends. And then the like, you have to love yourself before someone can love you. Like those two pieces of advice made me feel so alone. It really did. Because looking for it when like you're saying I need to put myself out there and I need to date, but I also can't look for it or I won't find it. So which one is it? Right. It's like, so I'm so desperate for wanting love and looking for it that that's why no one wants to be with me. Or now I don't love myself very much because I've been dating so long and I'm starting to believe I'm not lovable. And now you're telling me for that very reason, no one's ever going to love me. How hopeless is that? Right. So I'm a big advocate, especially for people who are anxiously attached. Do not ask your friends for advice. Do everything in your power to develop coping skills to self-soothe. Because when you reach out to people and you screenshot text, which I was guilty of, and you say, what should I say? What yeah. should I do? You are becoming like a compilation of your friends and those responses. That person's not dating you anymore. And then you regret it or you come across really all over the place because one minute you're responding like your friend, the next minute you're responding like yourself and you're fighting with yourself and they're like, what's going on? And it just makes us not trust ourselves. And then when we do get rejected, we're like, it's because I didn't listen. I listened to my friend and if I would have just done this and it feels so much better to know I showed up as me and if it's not a match, it's not a match. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think also what's important to know is like this time around with the person I'm currently dating, I feel like I haven't, I haven't had to show any texts to anyone because I've just not been made to feel a certain way. I've just been able to be myself. You know, there's been times when I have been a bit snappy and he's been a bit like, oh, and I've been like, oh my God, sorry. And it's just been, we're, we're totally ourselves around each other. I've not like needed to have any second person come in and tell me what I think a text might mean and analyze it word for word. It's just, not needed to. So maybe that's something to look at as well. If you are doing that, is it right? Yeah, exactly. I think that's a great question to ask yourself if you feel the need to ask people advice all the time. It's probably not it. And I'm just, again, so excited for you, Daisy, because this mm -hmm. sounds like such a promising partner for you. You sound so great. And that is something that happened with me with Blake. Like my friend's were like, you never talk about him. Are you sure you like him? Yeah. Like, they were yeah. so confused because before every other guy, I'm like, okay, he said this. And then we went on this date. What do you think this means? And with Blake, I was quiet because I didn't have anything to talk about. Like I was just having a good time and I was letting things happen and seeing where they went. Amazing. So yeah, those listening that aren't aware, Blake is the husband now so we'll get on to that very shortly but it's very exciting that you've found him he sounds amazing from what I've seen and what I've heard from your content um first though what did you do to find someone like Blake so I know you you know we spoke about giving Mr Mediocre a chance and enjoying that calm but what did you do for yourself to be able to meet a person like that yeah. So I, like I said, I had that rock bottom moment. I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. And that's when I, first of all, I invested in therapy. I didn't go through insurance here in the US. Insurance is a big part of finding a therapist a lot of the time, but it really limits you. And I was like, I need to go to someone who specializes in relationships and dating who gets me. And I did that. And I dug into therapy with someone who recommended Deeper Dating by Ken Page. Couldn't recommend that book enough. Um, and I started doing that with her. And then simultaneously, I decided to go on a trauma retreat um, for mental health professionals. And part of that was led by my work and what I was doing at the time. A lot of my clients had been in treatment and done rehabs, and I didn't know what it felt like to be in that experience. So I went on this trauma retreat, not really realizing that it was going to help me in dating so much. And I really got to do some deep healing. Inner child work is a big part of that for me. Um, and then I came back and kind of continued that work with my therapist. And the funniest part is I had already started the work with my therapist. And the week before I went on this trauma retreat, I met Blake. And I was... <laughs> 
super anxious because I didn't want to get my phone got taken away on that retreat. So I had no phone and my anxious attachment was like, I just met this great guy. He, I knew he was a good guy, like a nice guy. And so I kept telling myself this mean story. Still, I was still very much in my healing that if I get my phone taken away and he forgets about me and meets someone else in a week, like I'm just going to be alone forever. I'm like, like I just have the worst dating luck ever. So I was so anxious for them to take my phone away. But he ended up texting me every day when I was on that retreat saying like, hey, thinking of you, hope you're having a good time. So I came back to like seven days of texts of little check-ins and it was like the most healing thing in the world. Oh, that is so cute. I just got goosebumps. Um, You talk about healing. Can we talk about what that word means? Because again, it's a word that gets used on social media. I don't think some people know what it truly means. Um, So obviously with your experience and your qualifications, can you like tell us what that word means? Yeah, well, I think healing can mean a lot of things for a lot of different people. For me, first of all, disclaimer, you do not need to be fully healed in order to find love. You can find love in the beginning, the middle of your healing process. But for me, the biggest part of healing is learning how to take self-awareness and integrate it into actual action. I think a lot of people are self-aware on some level now. They know their attachment style. Maybe they've been like doing some pop psychology stuff on Instagram and TikTok. But to learn how to integrate it. What is, okay, I know why I am attracted to these types of people, or I know my attachment style, but what does that mean? How do I apply that? And so I think healing really is doing inner child work. It's looking at your subconscious. It's starting to accept yourself. So I don't believe you need to love yourself. I think you need to learn how to accept yourself and start noticing what do I have to offer as a partner? What are my gifts? What are things that are special about me? And then I need to protect those parts. So now I know that my sensitivity is special. It's not cringy. There's nothing wrong with it. So I need to protect that. I need a partner who adores my sensitivity and allows me to show up authentically. Or, you know, I... I'm very, I'm a good listener. So I need someone who appreciates that I'm a good listener and doesn't take advantage of that. So learning like, what do I have to offer? And then accepting the parts of you you don't like very much. Like, obviously I'm a chatter. I talk a lot. So I need to accept that that's just who I am. And I'm not just going to lay back and sit back and be this mysterious, quiet girl that dating advice told me I needed to be. I'm going to accept that I am a very big personality and I'm going to show up fully myself and the right person's going to like that about me. And so that's part of it. And to get there, I do a lot of um, inner child work, some trauma work, some attachment work. That's kind of my idea of healing. If I were to explain all of that, it would take forever, but hopefully that answers your question. No, it does. It it truly does. And when you talk about inner child, I know this is very complex, um, but I assume you mean things like you mentioned, like people in your family a little bit earlier. So kind of working on the patterns that you've been around and trying to detach from those patterns. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. With inner child, I would say I picture your inner child as your most authentic self, but also the part of you that holds the most wounds. So think of your inner child like your subconscious, your subconscious mind. And we all act out of our subconscious all of the time. We're actually on autopilot. And I talk about this great concept called the pain cycle. And we all have one. And so when that's triggered, so we have like our negative core beliefs that were developed in childhood that our subconscious or our inner child still holds on to and believes like, Maybe I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable, I'm not good enough, that kind of feeling. Anything that triggers that's going to lead us into our pain, which is going to lead us to cope in ways that might not be helpful because this is our autopilot. It's not our conscious prefrontal cortex working. So maybe we go on the apps and talk to the guy with the nice six pack to make ourselves feel better to cope with that feeling of unworthiness. But what happens is we engage with that person and then the outcome is they treat us like shit And then we still feel unworthy and unlovable. And so then we end up in this self-sabotaging cycle. And so the inner child work is kind of going back to those times, showing up for yourself back then at 3, 5, 8, 10, 15, and being the parent you needed, 
being kind, being accepting, saying, hey, your feelings matter, but you are worthy. I know it doesn't feel like it, but you are lovable. This isn't wrong. There's nothing wrong with you. And showing up for yourself in that way to where you start to actually believe it enough to not date people who make you feel unworthy and unlovable. Yeah. And it's good that people are talking about inner child more because I think then people that end up becoming parents, um, Mm -hmm. if they've seen this stuff on social media, they can then understand how to maybe better talk to their children to try and stop patterns eventually. Exactly. And there's so many things that our parents do, like they don't do on purpose or intentionally, they're doing their best. And sometimes it's just a developmental issue. So like when you're a teenager, you could look back and be like, oh my gosh, I was so dramatic. But that's you not being kind to yourself. Like you were a teen, that did feel like the end of the world at that time. Validate that, right? So your parent could have like meant well, but you were a teen or you were five and developmentally that thing hurt way more than it would as an adult. And so you have to validate that experience for that age. And I think that's part of the inner child. And then it's tapping into like, the fun, creative, silly side of you that you've left behind because maybe the world told you it was embarrassing and starting to embrace that and show up more authentically. Like for me, that was being too sensitive and being too loud and starting to go, no, screw that. I'm sensitive. I'm a therapist. Clearly, I'm sensitive. I care about people. And I'm super weird and funny and silly. And I'll dance in the middle of the grocery store and I don't care. And I'm not going to dim myself down anymore to be what society told me I should be. Yeah, I love that. I think we're a little bit similar there because I'm quite sensitive. And, you know, I've had family members be like, oh, you just can't take a joke. And I'm like, well, no, actually, that joke just weren't funny. Um, But I don't mind being sensitive because it means that I'm really like, um, I have lots of empathy for other people's stories. And do you know what I mean? That makes me a nice person that people come to, which is also why I'm getting into the field. So, yeah, I hate how we look at such beautiful traits sometimes so negatively. Um, I do have a question for you, which I think a lot of uh, listeners to the podcast would um, be quite intrigued about this. How do we know when we need to work on our anxious attachment and when it's kind of us or whether someone is just activating that in us because Mm -hmm. they're not a nice person or maybe they're an avoidant and they're making us feel that way? How do we know the difference? Well, so I would say it will be really obvious when you meet someone who's secure. So I think when we are dating someone who's avoidant, we're triggered so much. We're constantly anxious. We feel that in our body. Like you said, we're screenshotting texts. We're asking everyone for their opinions. There's clearly a feeling of things aren't safe. Like look at the other person's behavior. Are they taking a long time to respond to you? Are they being inconsistent? Are their words and actions not matching? All of that is valid for your anxiety, right? Those are valid reasons to be anxious. If you are anxiously attached and you date someone secure, which you might notice, sometimes you actually are going to be acting out and pushing that person away and actually going to feel more avoidant. So I don't think it feels the same when you're dating a healthy partner. I don't think you are anxious in the same way. I think you like take little things and run with it and as turn them into big red flags like oh I don't like the way he chews or you know what he texts me too quickly and I you know and you're like finding things to not like that are silly and really aren't valid and so I think you know when it's you and you know for for example with Blake at the very beginning I was my anxious attachment was still so activated that I was panicking and going into that retreat I would like called my friend crying. I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm so triggered because I really believe that this is a good guy. And so I'm telling myself this story that if he doesn't want to be with me, then I'm like really unlovable because before it was really easy to blame the other guys and call Mm -hmm. them an asshole. And so when I came back from that, there were still times where I would become hot and cold. I was starting to act like the fuck boy, so to speak, and would, you know, find little things and pick fights. And that's when you have to look in the mirror and you have to go, okay, like this is my anxious attachment. This is my trauma. And I'm projecting it onto him. He's not doing anything wrong. So you really need to like fact check yourself in those moments. But it feels so different that I think it is obvious when it's the other person versus when it's you and you just have to be honest about that 
This is so funny. We've been a little bit parallel. I called my best friend recently and I was like, Hannah, why am I being like this? He's like so nice and I'm just being a dick. Um, I, I made a joke on like our second date. We were like cooking and he just, I think he, actually what's happened is on our third date we spoke about it and it turns out that he heard the joke wrong and when we talked about it and I was like oh if I heard it that way I would have been annoyed too but this is what I said and he was like oh but basically he didn't find the joke funny and then I was literally took that round with it and was like he is so sensitive I cannot be a sensitive man I need to be the sensitive one and I just made it into this huge thing that like we both absolutely laugh now about our second date because it was just it was meant to be so good and it just wasn't it just got really awkward and it was because I took that and ran and I tried to make a problem because I knew there was like he was (laughs) he didn't do anything wrong (laughs) yeah exactly exactly I mean I talk about that too and even still sometimes in my marriage like I become the toxic one it's like my body is still so programmed for so long to have constant chaos and ups and downs and highs and lows. And Blake's always showing up for me. He's always reliable. He's always kind. And so I'll pick fights over nothing. You know, it's like, you said that the wrong way. You talked in a different tone of voice or whatever. And he's like, where is this coming from? And I have to check myself that like, I subconsciously am picking fights because the peace is too, like, it's too uncomfortable for me. And we do that a lot as we're healing our anxious attachment. So part of that's being graceful with yourself, but also holding yourself accountable and apologizing to that person. That's really the difference than someone who just treats you like shit and then just like moves on and pretends nothing happened. You have to be like honest and accountable and say, hey, you didn't deserve that. Like so much in the beginning of Blake and I's relationship, I had to check myself and I'd be like, hey, like, you know what? That wasn't meant for you. That was my past coming up. And I reacted off of like old wounds and you didn't deserve that. That wasn't meant for you. I'm sorry. Here's what I'm doing to work on it. Please call me out if I do this again. And that we had a lot of those conversations. And that's that's part of the healing is within the relationship. You can't fully heal before dating someone because that person is going to trigger your stuff. Yeah, that's so true. Because even in the like early stages, but when I was seeing him quite a lot, so like the fourth, fifth, sixth day, um, lost count now, but in that kind of stage where it's kind of serious, but getting getting that way. Um, I remember like being in London and just trying to flirt with people in the bar because I was just like trying to go against, I've met a nice person, but no, he can't be nice. So I'm just going to flirt with this person. And yeah. I caught myself doing that. And I was like, I don't actually want to be flirting with that person. I want the guy I'm dating to be like, I want to see him tonight. What are you doing? And it is just like acting out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's to me, that's like the wounded inner child or like maybe the teen, the teenager inside of you kind of acting out and trying to go against the grain. And I, I also believe that, you know, when we are in this healing process and riding out the wave and getting used to feeling safe, there is a part of us that's afraid who's like, this might be too good to be true. Like I've never been able to be loved like this. And so I think part of us like is scared. Like you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I know that was for me, it was like, this feels so nice to feel safe. I don't want this feeling to go away. But at the same time, subconsciously, we want to protect ourselves. So we might try to sabotage it before that shoe drops before they hurt us, right? So it's like, oh, I'll just push you away because this might be too good to be true and I'd rather me end it (laughs) than you hurt me. It's crazy. Humans are crazy. Um, (laughs) So then your love story, how how did you meet Blake? Yeah, so I... I first of all, I am still a big advocate for the dating apps. I just want to say that like, I think you can absolutely utilize them in the right way. But I did meet him in person. Um, happenstance, I was forced to go not forced, but I did. I went to my friend's 30th birthday party, but she lived in San Diego, which is two hours away from where I was living at the time. Um, and I'm very big on my sleep. I like so I was thinking oh great I'm gonna have to like sleep at her house and like I probably won't get a bed because it's a big party and I was not looking forward to that so I almost wanted to be talked out of it but I went anyway 
And I met Blake there at the end of the night. The party started at like two in the afternoon. It was like an all day thing, but I was staying there and I didn't meet him till like 10 o'clock at night. Cause there was a lot of people there, which is pretty funny. I remember seeing him from far away because he's very tall. And I don't know if you know this part of my story from Instagram, but he had crazy hair on a big handlebar mustache. And so he was like very obvious. And I just remember thinking, my friend actually made a joke about like, imagine sleeping with a guy with that hair. And she said that at the very beginning, and she knew him from high school. So they were all like, ha ha ha, oh, Blake. And I'm like, just he's a random guy. But I'm looking at him like his hair is pretty crazy. And he had this crazy handlebar mustache. And then we ended up talking at the end of the night, like in the kitchen. And he was just, we got really like caught up in talking about our passions for helping people. He's a teacher. Um, and it just felt really good. And then I was forced to share a couch with him that night, actually. And again, he's very tall. And it was this little couch. There was no blanket, anything, because we were locked out of her room. And I was complaining the whole time. I was not my best self. And he was such a gentleman, like didn't make any moves. He kissed me. That was it. And then I snuck out at like 6 a.m. because I was like ready to drive home and get to my bed. I was so uncomfortable that he DM'd me on Instagram. And then we ended up dating and doing kind of a mini long distance for a while. Wow. Okay. Who moved? I did. I moved back. So I went to college in San Diego and I was living in Orange County at the time for a job. But Orange County is not my place. And I knew I didn't want to be there for long. So I was happy to move back to San Diego and be here. Amazing. And you've got your honeymoon to look forward to. So you got married really recently then? Yeah, we got married May 6th this year. Wow. Okay. So I am going to assume that when people say when you know, you know, you're not going to fully agree with that term. Would you say that? Yeah, I would say, you know, I think it's different for everyone. I think when you know that you met someone good and that they have the qualities in a long-term partner, then you can know you are likely to choose that person. But I don't believe in soulmates. I don't believe that there's one person. I believe there's there's 10% of the people in the world are a match for you. Um, and so you have to choose who you want to do life with. And so it really does become kind of this decision, like how compatible are we? Do I think that this would be a good long-term partner? So a couple months into Blake, I did feel like he could be the one, not because there's this magical soulmate that I just found, but because he's such a good guy, he's such a caring person. We are so, we align on so many things and I feel really safe with him. He would be a great long-term partner to choose. Yeah. Amazing. And what do you guys work on now to create that longevity in a relationship? Do you have like a date night a week? Like what do you kind of do to make sure if you argue, do you have a rule that you kind of have to do? Like I I know a couple that like (laughs) have to go for it they each go for a run or a walk before coming mm. back together to talk and I always think that's quite a good idea because then you've got those endorphins running yeah so is there anything that you guys do and work on to make sure that this is you know solid yeah. well that's first of all a great thing is to go run or walk and kind of come back to it a big thing that I believe in is you can go to bed angry don't listen to that dating advice or relationship advice truly like it's better to sleep on it and talk in the morning than try to force things to hash out at 2 a.m. when your nervous system's going to be high, you're going to be tired, it's not going to work out super well. Um, a big thing that Blake and I do is like we really try to hear each other's repair attempts. So John Gottman talks about, um, he's a psychology expert on relationships, and he talks about repair attempts and that a lot of times couples who do well listen to each other's repair attempt and so that's like when you're in the middle of an argument and they make a lighthearted joke to take that they're trying to connect with you they're trying to take it down a notch right so we both do that really well I think we one of us will always do a repair attempt and it usually I notice it even if I'm mad and I want to stay in my ego and I allow it I allow to accept it and I go you know what he's trying to like calm down. He's trying not to fight with me anymore. I'm going to like laugh at this joke and maybe not continue (laughs) fighting about something that's really not important anyway. Um, And yeah, date nights are really important. We always try to at least go on one date a week. 
um, if possible too. And sometimes that doesn't need to be anything extravagant, but making like last night, even I, we put our phones away, turned them off and like watched a Disney movie. And I wanted to have like an inner child moment together. And I just, cause I was having like a stressful day and it felt really good to just connect with him like that. Love it. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your love story and you've given us so much good advice but I do also want to say your content creation is so good you know there's just I've learned so much from your content and it's just really helpful to consume small bursts like that um you know that you know is 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 from an expert so thank you for all of that content creation keep it going because I know it's just going to continue to grow and grow What, what have we got to look forward to from you I know that you've got some exciting things coming up Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad you find it helpful. I'm, you know, trying to be consistent with it and put out like helpful tidbits every single day. Um, And yes, I am coming out with a course soon. I have done groups and one on one coaching, but I'm really trying to find a way to reach more people and when they can at their own pace, because obviously scheduling like people who are in the UK, of course, aren't going to be able to show up to US time groups and things like that. And so I'm working on a course that's going to really have so much in it, like really about attachment, about how to heal, to do that inner child work and practical tools to use in dating to really start. I think the biggest like goal for me in what I do is teaching women, especially anxiously attached women, how to be attracted to healthy love and how to embrace healthy love. Cause I think that's one of the hardest things. And so that course is going to be very all encompassing. So I'm very excited to put that out. And additionally, I'm going to be finishing and creating the self healing journal, which can either be an add on or something you buy on your own. So that's also going to be really amazing for people that don't have the time for a course or coaching, but they want to work on themselves. That self-healing journal will be really cool. Amazing. And where can people follow you? Um, At Deeper Dating Coach on Instagram and TikTok, but Instagram's definitely more active. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I know it's nice and early in the US currently. And of course, you can follow Daisy Dates podcast wherever you go to get them uh, on all streaming platforms. You can watch on YouTube and also on Instagram, trying to be better on TikTok. Uh, And you can follow my personal Daisy Bell on TikTok and Instagram as well. And I'll see you next time.